0: have accessed entry 1031.mt2411, certificate number 38899, Rasputin.
1: Now, normally we would have some conversation about how to pronounce the name because it seems like there are a lot of different pronunciations of Rasputin, Rasputin or Rasputin or Rasputin. How would you, how would you say it? Uh, You said it Rasputin. I
0: always grew up saying Rasputin. I just, I just noticed it has Putin at the end. Yeah. Like as in Vladimir. Yeah. Is that, I wouldn't never have thought of that as a common Russian stem or syllable. Well, and
1: Rasputin seems, I mean, because they don't say Putin, do they? They say poutine. No, that's that's Canadians that say poutine. Oh, poutine, right, is the gravy-colored French fries. Gravy-covered French fries, not (laughs) just colored. (laughs) Most French
0: fries are (laughs) gravy-colored to one degree or another.
1: Then you put gravy on them. Uh, Are you, do you like poutine? Very much.
0: Yeah, I'm not so fond of it because it has potatoes. Oh, right. I, don't, I love do you, gravy. Do you just eat the gravy and the cheese curd off the top? I like that and then a lot. That'd be perfect. So gravy you to, colored cheese curd. You need curd. to find somebody who likes fries but not poutine, which is everyone in America. Right. And you could just like lick all the French fries oh, off and give it back to them. How
1: many people like licked fries? Not that many, uh, which not, is a kind of German fries. fries.
0: We don't kink shame anyone on this show, right. so...
1: Right. And I, you know, like, I think I would love fries and mayonnaise, but because uh, I love mayonnaise, but I don't like fries.
0: Again, you just need to find a normal American that right. does not want Belgian mayonnaise with his fries. I and mean, then you can you lick all the mayo <laughs> off. What a service you provide. <laughs> well,
1: um, I, you know, lately I haven't been diving right into our topics because I love talking about everything but the, what we're talking
0: about. Why do we always pick the least interesting thing to do a show about and then... Because then we just want to talk about everything else.
1: I think it's because all the interesting topics have already been covered by uh, NPR back in 1993. Ira Glass is on top of it. <laughs> uh, what you know that I have a, a an affection bordering on an affectation about uh, European history, and I'm not sure if you share that with me.
0: What is uh, what what is the no, for some reason American history is much livelier and more vivid in my mind. Yeah. And I think it's um maybe just the greater complexity of of the European stage and having to understand what was going on in eight places at once if you want to contextualize a, a war or a or a leader or a social movement. Whereas, you know, in, in the much more the larger but more homogeneous US. Right. You know, it's, it's a single timeline. Right, here's right. A civil, here's the Civil War, here's Westward Expansion, here's the Gilded Age, you know, you can... Right, you Cumberland can, Gap, Daniel Boone. It's dominoes, and Europe is not dominoes. Europe Europe is a, a whack-a-mole. And I think that's what, I think, honestly,
1: that's what appeals to me so much about European history is that at a certain point, I realized that I had the, um, I had those, whatever that faculty is, of being able to say, oh, wait a minute, like in 1604, Columbus sailed the ocean bore. I don't think that can be right. Um, but No, I guess that's not the phrase. But you know what I mean? Like you put it yeah. together and you then. Know, you
0: know some benchmarks yeah, and, then and then you then can you see could, connections. Like, oh, this is that and
1: the, that person was married to this person. So, yeah, I did I did develop a, an interest in it. You know, Chinese history could be or Indian history could be. I mean, I'm sure there are people listening to the show. that That's their discipline. I don't know anything about Chinese history.
0: And it definitely, just as a sidebar, it does show up on the show that we are more knowledgeable about European and American history. Right. And as a result, we produce this terrible colonialist, <laughs> colonialist <laughs> version of history because of our comparative ignorance about... That's a challenge for the listener. What are the great footnotes about... Uh, other lesser-known parts of the world, you feel a connection to.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, we we should start doing shows on uh, Thailand and Singapore. You
0: need to do a show about India. For every show you do about the Balkans, we've done some shows about how much I love the war in Yemen. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much every show is you is you cheerleading extolling uh, the virtues of endless endless war in Yemen. I, I I've seen the bumper sticker on your car. Mm-hmm.
1: But the one European country that I can't uh, that I don't have as full of a grasp of is Russia. You know I mean, as much as you can know about Russia, but it was it was closed off, I think for a long time and they also, chose
0: to go behind a not just a curtain, right What's the what's the hardest kind of curtain you can imagine? Velvet? No curtain of shame. What if, a, a cur- but, curtain of, of social exprobation. But Russia said, they really upped the stakes on they curtains. Did. And they said, what if there was a curtain of iron?
1: A big iron
0: curtain. You couldn't open it. You couldn't see over it. You couldn't see past it. And our generations of Americans kind of grew up with Russia as a big question mark on a on a map.
1: But I think even before that, you know, the... Um the Ural Mountains were a kind of mountainous curtain,
0: a rock curtain, if yeah, you will,
1: beyond which it was hard to except, penetrate. Except
0: a rock curtain sounds
1: awesome. Yeah, rock curtain. What's going on beyond the rock curtain? Kiss is playing. But you know, the sort of Russian feudalism was a kind of feudalism that persisted, uh, and was a like a harsher toke, I think, than. The feudalisms that we know better—that's
0: because they're a, a, a hardier, colder, more vodka-powered people.
1: Yeah, it's all—it's or, it's, or
0: maybe that's a
1: result of it. I don't know. It's gnarly, but also it took a long time to—a long time, including even now—to really explore and populate Siberia. Like I'm sure futurelings are uh, are listening to this show from the mega-opolises of Siberia
0: of Omsk and, and
1: Vladivostok. <laughs> That's right these cities of 20 million people like human They're
0: which... all underground probably. Uf- Ufa now goes into the ground. 8000 oh, right. feet.
1: Of course. Well,
0: yeah. Uh, well after the the chemical wars and the genetic wars and the um what else could you have wars over?
1: Well, almost anything. Rocking Social media wars, w- cola wars.
0: <laughs> the cola Wars.
1: <laughs> now that's an omnibus entry.
0: That was the first cola War. We yeah. don't know about the terrible... I mean, we can laugh now, but we don't know how many fatalities there will be in the second, you know, kind of like how the second Iraq War was not as good as the first Well, one. the thing is,
1: the history will look back and realize it was all one continuous war. Yeah,
0: Michael Jackson's hair going on fire for Pepsi, that was yeah. just, that was like Fort Sumter. That was just the beginning. And then it was a century of, of decline. I think if you were
1: going to build a city underground... Uh, building it in an era or an area of like hundreds of thousands of miles of swampy muskeg, that's not where you're going to put your underground city. It's not where you're going to put your above ground city.
0: Uh, you, don't want any, you don't want anything to do with it. You got to build it before the permafrost melts.
1: Well, yeah, but building it is going to melt the permafrost. That's the, that's the uh, paradox of Siberian cities.
0: Not if you do good eco, uh, practice.
1: What's interesting about Siberia to me is that you think of it as being, you know, the north up in the sort of Norwegian Alaska latitudes, but really Siberia extends down far to the south. I
0: discovered that this morning. What this is, this is for me. I was thinking, hey, maybe you could do a show about that guy named that white Russian guy named Kolchak who became. The dictator of the Russian state during World War One, you know, you know, when the West refused to recognize the Bolsheviks, right? So the West was pretending Russia was this government in exile in Siberia, and he spent most of the year as a dictator running this made-up Russian state with its own money and coat of arms and everything out of Omsk, Siberia. And I was like, "Ooh, where's Omsk? Got by the Arctic, Arctic Circle? No, no. Uh, Omsk is to the north of us, but it's it's roughly the same latitude as Manchester, England."
1: Right, which we don't think of as an icy waste. We don't we don't think of it as an icy waste. We think and, of
0: it as a place of, of uh, amazing rave music. Uh, well, some of us maybe. <laughs> That's not you. <laughs> no, I think of
1: it as uh, you know as home to uh, Joy Division.
0: Yeah, I was, was going to say. I, thought, I I was about to say Ian Curtis's grave, and <laughs> you. I didn't even have to. Uh,
1: well, I think that I I often forget because of the Gulf Stream that Manchester is north of Seattle because considerably north. Yeah, because it's much I mean the climate isn't any different from Seattle. Yeah,
0: everywhere in Europe is just um skewed. Yeah, you know, 500 miles north of where you think it is. Yeah, I mean Stockholm is a I think a nicer
1: like cl- climate than Anchorage.
0: And Stockholm is actually at the North Pole.
1: It is literally the North Pole. The
0: earth spins around Stockholm.
1: Uh but our story begins sort of outside the town of Tumen In Siberia, which if you look at a map of Siberia, it's way down there by Kazakhstan. And so it feels like, oh, it's, you know, that's kind of south. But it's actually at about 59 degrees latitude. (laughs) So quite a bit further north um, than you think, but also not Arctic. Uh, Outside of the town of Tumen. It's not a Tumen. There's a tiny little uh, village called uh, Pokrovskoye. Which is just a sort of Siberian uh, mud hole, and I'm sorry to anybody from Post- Pokrovskoye.
0: But your town is literally Russian for Siberian mud hole.
1: Yeah, and, and Tiumin is about the size of Anchorage, which is what's a, a, a another amazing thing is like there this, are this
0: little yeah. Well, in China, it's like all these cities you've never heard of that are literally the size of Houston. Yeah, you know? f- fifteen
1: cities <laughs> in China are bigger than New York City, and you know I wouldn't be able to name uh, fourteen of them. But uh, this is uh, the little Siberian um, mud hole, the little pimple, uh, in which in 1869, the uh, super famous Russian, one of, I think, the, what, the top 10 most famous pre-revolution Russians that any of us could name.
0: Probably top. I mean, what pre-revolution Russians even are there? Tolstoy. uh... Yeah, writers and... The czars. Sad writers and maybe three czars, you know?
1: That you could name, right. Peter
0: there's... the Great, Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Peter the Terrible.
0: You got, you got an Alexander that sold us Alaska. yeah. But except for that, I don't really care much about him. You got Nicholas 1, Nicholas 2. I only know Nicholas 1 exists because the existence of Nicholas 2 implies the existence of Nicholas the First.
1: That's true. You got Anna Karenina. No. But she's fake.
0: We're not doing train collisions. That was, that was
1: Tuesday. <laughs> um... And uh, so the character of our of our uh, show, which you would know, Futurelings, if you looked at the metadata for this podcast, I'm sure there are plenty of Futurelings that just, the podcast just comes into their ears. They don't, they have no idea what it's about because they don't read the title.
0: Like you could pivot to Herbie the Love Bug and they have no idea. The most
1: famous Russian pre-revolution is Herbie the Love Bug. That's what, who the, name, the movies were named after.
0: No, he's German.
1: No, we're talking about Grigory... Yefimov, Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin. Okay, Rasputin, the notorious Rasputin. Did we? Oh, we talked about him already on this show. So we the, we gave up the ghost
0: early I, on. Well, I said the title, and then you talked about how to pronounce oh, it. Oh, right, you do say the title at the beginning of the episode. What am I talking about? There's no secrets here. Well, they they might not know. They might forget. I mean, I o- forgot. It was only o- ten minutes ago. O- Often an hour goes by, I forget. <laughs>
1: Uh, and Rasputin was born just a, you know, you're, you know, a, a, a peasant child, had no, um, well, really no access even to the indoor toilets of Tumen, let alone uh, any access to the global stage. It
0: is funny to imagine all these people, all these historical figures with nothing but mystique, just imagine them as like dirt poor peasant kids who smell like. Uh, Dirt poor peasant kids, killi- peasant pig dropping kids, yeah. as, as I'm sure many of them did. Rasputin's mother had seven kids, and none of
1: them survived. Uh, he was the only kid to survive.
0: It's probably analogous to like being a rock star. You're like I'm gonna, you know, you're you're Trent Reznor. You're from, you know, some dying Rust Belt city. You're like I'm gonna, you know, dress and make myself up real cool because I come from a little house with no mystique and unemployed parents.
1: Interestingly about Trent Reznor, his grandfather invented the Reznor brand uh, indoor gas-powered heater that you see in every warehouse in America, these big sort of blast heaters that all say Reznor on them. And so I think Trent Reznor came from a little bit of cash. Is that right? I think he's got, you know, he's got royal blood because I mean royal in the American sense of like being an HVAC heir
0: but Rasputin did not he no. came from absolute uh destitution destitution and there
1: was nothing to distinguish him he had a he didn't have the long beard yet <laughs> not yet he had a he he married young and had several children uh and appears to have always been charismatic but also the type of uh the type of charismatic young guy who abandoned his wife uh with her multiple kids to go on walkabouts um he was a he was a wanderer and um at a at a pretty darn young age uh in his i guess not a young age considering what the lifespan of people in the 1880s would have been yeah but at the age of twenty eight in one of his wanderings to avoid being home helping to feed his kids he had a mystical experience and became a kind of you know he he had a a conversion experience in the russian orthodox church and became a kind of it gave his wanderings a little bit of shape and form and he became a mystic kind of monk-like person although within the orthodox Church, he was not recognized as any kind of. He,
0: he has no ecclesiastical authority. None, none whatsoever. But you, that's not unusual for mystics. That's right. There are usually outsiders. It's what distinguishes a mystic. You've read, uh, if well, you had, yeah, if you had a day job, if you were busy, right. uh, you know, trying to put a new spire on the basilica, right? You don't have time to have mystical journeys through the afterlife. Sure. Or,
1: I mean, just just giving communion takes up all
0: that time. You you, you probably got pastoral stuff. Honestly, you're probably doing more good if you're if you're visiting old ladies and patting their hands, than if you're um, describing apocalyptic visions. But you know that's that's not who history remembers.
1: You've read varieties of religious experience. I have the not. William James' book. It's very, very interesting talking about this exact thing where, um, you know, the the prophets, the um, the the characters that end up becoming saints, the peoples, the people who around whom religion and and ecstatic religion, all those people um, around whom religion turns are in their time heretical and reviled and excommunicated and burned at the stake you know it's almost by definition the uh, the people that have what later on is characterized as the uh, that they see the true light are never in their time. Seen. I mean, with the exception of Mother Teresa, uh, you know the sort of selfless, the selfless saints. Most of the ones that are like, "Ah, oh, God is talking to me," get um, defenestrated. Let's be
0: honest. People in every field like to say that, though, right? Like, of course they're, of course they're coming after me. Of course my, you know, of course we never had the chart topping record. Right of, you know, course, that, of course that's cold, what
1: cold fusion is rejected. that's what happens
0: to the real
1: innovators and artists. yeah, it's the Copernicus problem, right
0: uh is uh but you think Rasputin's a, a sincere mystic he's got he's had uh he's had actual um what soul changing kinds of experiences
1: What's interesting about Rasputin is um so much of what we know about him is. And this, I think, is also true. You know, the history, uh, history is written by the victors. And Rasputin, the story is so written by the Bolsheviks uh, after the fact. I mean, there's a lot of he's, – he's a very popular character. Or, I mean, a, certainly a well-known character in his time. And there was a lot of bad publicity around him because he was so influential In his time. But, um, but a lot of, a lot of that was then exaggerated by the Bolsheviks because Rasputin, as we'll see in a minute, um, was, uh, you know, was a character that helped delegitimize the Romanovs.
0: Well, that's what I'm wondering. Would it, would they, um, then embrace him? Hey, thank you for helping us make the Tsar look bad.
1: Well, no, I think, <laughs> I, think <laughs> I mean, it was,
0: Isn't there some degree in which he could be a Soviet
1: hero? He makes the Tsar look bad, but he also, you know. He's complicit. He, he, and he's also orthodox, which is not, oh, yeah. you know, what the Bolsheviks were into. But he, um, interestingly about Rasputin, he did not make a bunch of charlatan claims in the sense that he wasn't someone who, Sat and spoke in spoken tongues or waved his hands around and, and, uh, um, did he even
0: have, he wasn't even trying to inculcate a school of followers, really, right? Well, he was accused
1: at the time of being a member of a, of a sect, a, a, a sect that split from, uh, the Orthodox Church called the Keelists. And, uh, they were an ecstatic group that they were, um, they were the type, like so many sects, that was fascinated by sex uh, or, or did not, you know, the, or or rather they were maybe smeared by their enemies as being, uh, you know, carnal. And what's confusing is that at the time, you know, within Siberian culture, like, you know, there was a lot of co-bathing, you know, just as a matter of I mean once you heat up the water, like like everybody in type of thing. Um but but
0: like sauna culture, but with uh
1: Yeah. But this was also a time when, you know, modernization throughout the nineteenth century had been a a a very gradual process. Once the once the serfs were freed, the serfs were freed, but did not immediately experience freedom. I and mean, when we think about the end of the civil war and the slaves were emancipated in the United States in 1865, the serfs in Russia were only emancipated in 1861. And this is decades after, uh, the dissolution of the, the peasantry as a, as a sort of l- legal definition. Right, feudalism is gone. Feudalism is gone all, throughout the rest of Europe. But really, eighteen sixty-one is the emancipation of the serfs. But that emancipation was largely um,
0: yeah, their problems are not over, right? No, and
1: also it's not the end of serfdom. It's kind of like uh, like we saw in 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 Reconstruction America. It was like, okay, you're free now, back to work. Uh, There wasn't, you know, there wasn't like all of a sudden a a complete emancipation. Well, it's just
0: like you know, breaking up the. Breaking up the British Empire didn't end colonialism either. Right, like right. the same, the same forces existed, but with different uh, different definitions.
1: Except, you know, with the with the kind of added um, the added element in Russia of there still being a, a uh, all the other aspects of feudalism. I mean, in America, what we had it was a capitalist economy, and so we emancipated the slaves, and they went from being owned to being underpaid workers in Russia, there were the dukes and the, and the, the royal family still owned all the land. There wasn't, it wasn't like you suddenly got 40 acres and a mule. Well, either place. But so, so what was happening in Russia was a kind of, there was an urban fascination with the rural, um, you know, the colorful kind of rural culture it was a fascination of it that you saw in other uh, in other cultures like like the pre-revolutionary France where uh, the royals started building little oh yeah you know like follies on their land like oh look at
0: the quaint to have the bucolic pastoral life right and
1: in in Russia there was you know there was clearly I mean the the uh, the culture of St. Petersburg was very oriented to Europe
0: and to the cosmopolitan the west, cosmopolitan right? Near
1: West, right? and they were they were all speaking French and having glamorous balls and uh and so these these colorful characters from the the rump states um they they were regarded as like, oh, maybe there's you know, oh, they are folk wisdom I see uh, and so these mystical cults um, they came to St. Petersburg and the court. Various colorful characters kind of made their way, br- brought in as novelties, or like you know some some archduchess would would invite to their ball some orthodox character um, from the provinces, and it would yeah yeah they're hungry for novelty, hungry for novelty, and I think the I think. Rasputin, as he wandered the, as he went through his wanderings, he was just your classic charismatic where he would stand and, and give a talk. And he was tall and wild eyed and, uh, and people just gravitated to him. He could kind of gather a crowd and again, didn't make any, you know, sort of, uh, overt healer claims, but was seen as someone who had uh, contact with God and the ability to sort of, um, you know, sp- sp- in the same way that, that, uh, that you see with a lot of mystics. Like, he's not making radical claims, but people are making claims about him.
0: And, of course, he doesn't have to. You know, right. once, once he's created a culture where that can happen, he doesn't have to get up in front of a tent full of people and say, who gets healed first? That's right. It's m- maybe better if he doesn't. Think of the mystique. He's a, he's a thorn in the side of the,
1: of the actual Orthodox clergy in, in, uh, on the other side of the Urals. But it's like so often, I mean, they, um, they use him when they can. I mean, they, they cutsel up to him when he's popular and, um, but again, he has no, no one ever vests him. And I think he first makes it to St. Petersburg in his, in his mid thirties. As a, as a sort of, um,
0: again, like colorful character from the hinterlands, but in the royal. It, it, and he's, is he brought there? Uh, well, so. He's not just a traveling preacher showing up in the big city. Like, uh, this is where, or does he feel like God has put him there?
1: Maybe the, maybe the first time he gets there, he's, yeah, he's just coming, uh, coming through in his travels, but he attracts the attention of a couple of, um, members of the royal court, who are two sisters, Milica and Anastasia, who are princesses of Montenegro, and they are married into because of the oh, sort of okay. Slavic. I was uh, like, they got
0: lost. Okay, they've married into a yeah, they're, into, into the Romanovs.
1: They're South Slavs, and they're marrying you know North Slavs or R- Russian Slavs. Moving on up, and you see this even in in today, or definitely in the war in Serbia. Like Russia traditionally thinks of the Balkans as part of their overall sphere, even though the West does not think of the Balkans as part of the Russian sphere. And this has always been the, the Balkans are all, that's why they're, that's why, that's why we, they're Balkanized. Why we talk about them is that the Turks also saw it as part of their sphere and the Austrians did. But the Russians do because the, they share a, uh, like a racial xenotype, Slav. Slavic culture, and the so these Montenegrin princesses came and married some some Romanov princes, and became prominent figures in the court. And the two of them together, even in their even in in their time, were referred to in the newspapers and by the by the chattering class as the Black Peril, because, because... they were interested in the occult, mm. and they
0: obviously were uh, intrigue. Are they like flaky Goth types, or are they um, is it because they're from some suspect, less sophisticated part of the world they're bringing their backward ways to St. Petersburg?
1: No, I think there was a lot of mysticism. Uh, it was that they brought mysticism into the inner circles of the court. So I don't think that they were thought of as uh, backward at all. They were uh, they were in they're full of intrigue and they were causing, you know, they're, they're they're soap opera characters, causing yeah. disruption, and they and they have this access because they're married to prominent princes.
0: This this uh, same, by the way, this same uh, narrative happens today when people marry and outsiders marry into royal families. It right. It happened with Diana, and it happened with Fergie, and it happened with Meghan Markle, and like the 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 popular consciousness loves to seize on this idea that um, you know maybe our leaders are kind of hidebound and out of touch, but you know what's really scary is when you get some get some young young often female energy and they're shaking things up right and that
1: that absolutely happened here and and um, and part of it was that the that the actual royal family, even even by the standards of their time um, were were extremely isolated. And, uh, and l- lived in a world where there was, there was very little, uh, very little reality kind of made it into the inner universe. Mm-hmm. So, so care you know, women like the, um, like the, like these two sisters, uh, they were able to bring news from outside and the fact that they also were uh, living in a, in a world of total disconnect.
0: Just like Diana and Meghan Markle. You guys are doing stupid things. Do you know what young people actually do?
1: Yeah. Right. They go, they, they go to Manchester and listen to Joy Division. <laughs> well, as you know, Ken, I've been, uh, I've been struggling with a feeling that I'm losing my hair.
0: You're texting me about your hair a lot more than you used to.
1: Yeah, I used to text you 0 times about my hair. That was nice. Now I'm like, what is this? Is this a sign of something? You know, it's um it just feels less full and poofy than it once did.
0: That is just uh, the ravages of time. Ugh. It's going to happen to it's going to happen to almost every guy at some point.
1: I want to live forever, Ken, and I want to keep the hairline that I had
0: when I was 22. You can do that. Oh, you, you, live forever? Yes. <laughs> wow, fantastic. You can live forever through your work. I love keeps even more. And you can keep your hairline yeah. through keeps. The best time to prevent hair loss now is when you still got some to keep up there. Yep, that's me. Uh, and, but it's kind of tricky. Sometimes you have to go to a doctor's office if you want a prescription. That does feel tricky. Uh, what if you didn't have to do that? What doctors if you could just, are always
1: tricking me. What
0: if you could just visit a doctor online and then the okay. medication would just show up in your mailbox?
1: Sounds good. That sounds
0: pretty good, it right? It does. That is the service that keeps offers in exchange for a relatively economic payment.
1: I mean, uh, are these uh, are these super expensive, like, brand-name drugs, or do they have a better way?
0: These are the two FDA-approved hair loss products, and they're available to you now at, like, a super affordable price.
1: Because they're using uh, – oftentimes, they they have available the generic versions that are the same product, but – but a lot cheaper, is that right?
0: The same two treatments, yes. There's only
1: two that work, and all those ones where I put my finger in an electrode or I, I walk around my
0: house three times before I go to bed, you pick up your cat and rub its butt on your bald spot. Well, no, that works. It works uh, for some things, but it does not prevent hair loss. Oh. actually, oh, oh, right, I'm mistaking
1: it, it for another treatment.
0: It brightens up your evening, mm. I guess. <laughs> Keeps us more five star reviews than any of its other competitors in the space, and more than a hundred thousand happy customers and the treatment started just ten dollars a month
1: so if you're ready to take action as i am and prevent hair loss as i truly now feel like i am go to keeps k-e-e-p-s dot com slash omnibus to receive your
0: first month of treatment for free that's k-e-e-p-s dot com slash omnibus you'll get your first month free k-e-e-p-s
1: dot slash omnibus the wife of the czar uh Alexandra Fedorovna um she was a, a you know sort of dramatic and easily influenced princess and she had um uh, she had these sort of characters around her, including her best friend Anna Virabora, Bora, who was one of her ladies in waiting and kind of like a lower status. Royal, but who, who jumped the queue, and became the became the princess's confidant, because again she also was interested in, um, in kind of I mean not necessarily occult practices, but this was the exciting stuff that was happening outside the court. You know, imagine how boring it would be to just sit and dance the minuet over and over, especially in the late 1800s. Why are you still dancing the minuet? Um, but rather than get involved in like the literary culture of Moscow,
0: you know, they're, social work.
1: Yeah, they are uh, they're playing with Ouija boards. So Rasputin gets, you know, it becomes a figure of fascination for the, you know, the kind of court stringers. But there's a there's a vulnerability that Alexandra has, which is that her only son. Uh, Alexi is, who is the heir apparent. I mean, she has older daughters, but he's the, he is the boy. And so he is the future, future czar. And he suffers from type B hemophilia. Uh, and he suffers from a bad case of hemophilia.
0: His blood doesn't clot. Even the smallest bump or injury could be a Serious, life-threatening. Huh? That's right. He 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 suffers
1: from internal bleeding. Almost anything can kind of bruise him and 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 uh, and cause him to be yeah, uh, yeah. As you say, like it could be a fatal injury.
0: And this is uh, not uncommon in royal royal houses. Well, Pro- so this is all because of-
1: this is all descended from Queen Victoria. Yeah, and this kind of hemophilia is passed. Via the X chromosome. So the mother gives it to her son and it manifests in the boys, but is carried through the female line. And so, yeah, this is a, it's a, hemophilia is called, you know, the disease of the royals because, because all of Queen Victoria's progeny, as we know, like it, 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 it appears and reappears.
0: That's why I decided to get it. Is that right? Yeah, I love the royal family. I'll just buy all kinds of commemorative plates and, and you thought, huh? And mugs and stuff. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I have hemophilia? The one thing that's missing here.
1: Um, it's a you know it's a terrible condition, and in per, in particular, um, with the severity that our young Prince Alexei had, and his mother was, you know, absolutely distraught because by all accounts. He was a beautiful little boy. He was a uh, he was a, a very sort of loving and uh, interesting little child, and so everyone loved him. And he was constantly on the verge of death. And so she he's, was always.
0: He's a Tiny Tim type. We know yeah, we know this guy Tim. from literature. Everyone loves the adorable waif who's learned these spiritual truths by the specter of death in his life at a young age. That's right, and. Right
1: at this point, uh, Rasputin is sort of becoming, uh, becoming a known quantity and already kind of reviled by, by people that should, that should know, uh, as somebody that is a member of this cult, he's, you know, he's described as a rapist and as a, as someone who's corrupting the young and sexing people, uh, within the church
0: He's an outsider, but he has influence. So whether these things are true or not, people have something to gain by spreading rumors about him.
1: Right, but he's known as someone who has the has the gift of healing. And right about this time, uh, the early twentieth century, um, Alexei is uh, the the royal family is trying to guard him against injury. They actually they have a little a uh, guard, like two members of the Navy that follow him everywhere and try and keep him from falling down. Putting little pillows on the corners of desks and things. Exactly. Um, in But in, you know, he's a little boy. You can't, can't keep him safe. In 1907, he fell just playing in a park and injured himself um, where he was hemorrhaging inside. Yeah. His leg was swelling. He was like deeply sick. And it was suggested that they um that they call rasputin and rasputin came and kind of uh basically just kind of shooed everyone away from the boy and miraculously and by all accounts miraculously uh the boy was immediately the next day sitting up in bed happy uh his fever went down he's um he regains his health and at this point rasputin becomes like the favorite
0: did he, did rasputin do anything or is this the coincidence that
1: uh so right about this time um aspirin becomes uh widely available bear um That's so funny. Bear and uh, kind of in 1880 or 1899 Bayer sort of branded this drug as aspirin and started selling it around the world. So aspirin was, as you can imagine, a miracle drug in this era. The first kind of analgesic that, uh, that actually was so simply by just ingesting
0: a pill um, could relieve pain. This is one of those funny overlaps where you can't believe that Ronald Reagan and Harriet Tubman were alive at the same time. It, yeah. seemed, it seems funny to imagine that the Tsar of Russia could pop an aspirin.
1: Yeah, and aspirin, you know, was uh, was like swept the world. Like, look at this incredible drug,
0: aspirin mania, giant parade, dancing, big dancing aspirin pills at sporting it, events,
1: even if they didn't need it crushing it up and snorting it shortages but the problem with aspirin is
0: it's a blood thinner yes to this day people are not supposed to take aspirin if they've got um certain kinds of thin blood conditions
1: and the doctors who were treating uh who were treating the the Tsarevich, um were doing that thing that doctors of the time did which was over intervening bleeding him and leeches and and tinfoil hats and covering him with Fritos yeah, or whatever. If you're it the
0: is. royal doctor, you can't be seen to be doing nothing. Right.
1: And giving him copious amounts of aspirin. Mm. And one of the main things that Rasputin did was say, leave him alone. I've got this, God's
0: got this. And And Rasputin was not had did not have some genius uh, provincial healing knowledge that uh, aspirin thinned the blood, right? Well, there were a lot of people that
1: suggested that so so the again this is a time of great quackery. And so people were saying that he was using magnetism to heal the boy or hypnotizing him or using um, mysterious Tibetan herbs that he had access to as a result of being from the Kazakhstani border. Uh, and all of this stuff was sort of speculated about Rasputin that through, um, connecting the magnetic field of the earth to the boy's blood vessels you know who who knows it was all it was all gossip and this the is the kind hand. of
0: mumbo jumbo yeah. that he, even if he didn't say outright he would love to have people saying about him but there are there are several
1: instances at least with alexei that uh where the doctors of the time and all of the you know there was a it's not like this was happening in secret this this boy was the most celebrated child in Russia and was known to be sickly and people watching him very carefully and could not account for his recovery. The worst, uh, was in 1912 when, um, Alexei was, he went to jump into a rowboat, uh, as they were doing the frolicking that the Romanovs do. This kid should not be frolicking. And he slipped and he fell, he landed on his groin halfway in, halfway out of the rowboat. And this injury um,
0: would have been hilarious on America's Funniest Home Videos. That's right. Did they have Russia's Funniest Home Videos?
1: It's the type of thing we still want to laugh at. But in this case, it was a traumatic injury. And although it was, you know, it was healing kind of on its own, he went on a carriage ride in October of that year. And the rough roads, the jostling of his body just sitting on the seat in a carriage, a seat which you presume was padded. Yeah. Uh, but just the just the kind of uh, shaking wow. and bouncing of the carriage uh, like ex- exacerbated the wound.
0: He's like the dynamite in in sorcerer. You can't take that kid anywhere. He's really he's really really <laughs> fragile. And
1: uh, at this point, he goes into a a deep sickness. He has a hundred and two fever. Spends 11 days just languishing, but also screaming in pain. Like really, uh, you read the descriptions of it. You feel so badly for this little boy, uh, at the pain he's suffering. And he, he, uh, he gets to the point where they give him his last, they read him his last rites. Wow. Um, there's just, you know, the doctor's all crowding around. There's just nothing that can be done. At which point, um his mother telegrams Rasputin who's thousands of miles away at the time. And Rasputin telegraphs back and says, the little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. And they shoo all the doctors away and Rasputin from thousands of miles away practices magnetism or talks to God and Alexei recovers.
0: It's basically a, a John Cage or a Jerry Seinfeld thing where his his innovation is just to do nothing. Right. He does nothing.
1: And, and uh, medicine
0: is so bad at the time that nothing is often better.
1: Right. And and that's not recognized in its moment, right? The the idea that uh that chasing away the doctors would be chasing away people that were causing more harm than good. But uh, that is
0: but that's funny. That is kind of the ethos behind a lot of Kind of natural medicine today. Yeah, these days. you just got to stop goofing around. Like a lot of this stuff is harmful, and the body can heal itself. And it's not all wacky. It's you know some of that's exactly right.
1: But it's also the argument of Christian Science or of uh, of Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, there are a lot of religions that say don't, yeah, say the Pledge of Allegiance and
0: don't take aspirin to, to interfere is somehow ungodly or a lack of faith or desecrates the body.
1: Yeah, and.
0: You know, and th- this is kind
1: of this turning point in science, too, where, you know, 1905, 1912, there's not, a, there's not a full understanding of how all these bodily systems work and interact. Yeah. Particularly something as confusing as hemophilia. How do you treat internal bleeding that's, not, that's related to, like, injuries sustained in a rough carriage ride? So, of course, a lot of the credit, all of the credit uh, in terms of the, within the royal court, all of it is attributed to Rasputin's intervention. At which point Rasputin becomes, um, not only a member of the court, but, uh, Rasputin begins to have tremendous, tremendous influence over the princess or rather the Tsarina and very shortly after this the world war 1 begins and the um the tsar is consumed with waging the war and this is at a time when the tsar was was a military leader and yeah. saw himself as a military leader and throughout the the early days of the war the tsar is Absolutely taken away from the business of running Russia and the, you know, matters of the court and is thinking only about the war. And eventually, of course, he, the czar, asserts himself as the military leader of the Russian army and absence himself entirely from, uh, from political matters and, you know, rides off on his horse to, to guide the conduct of Russia in the, in the war. At which point the Tsarina is, not just ostensibly, but, but, you know, becomes the authority, the government authority. And is utterly under the sway of Rasputin, who, as you can imagine, begins to feel like he also is pretty good at politics. And so...
0: Is he actually a Rasputin lover of the Russian queen? Well, so...
1: These are the um, these are the accusations that swirled about in his time, but also uh, were really exaggerated by the Bolsheviks. Um, there's no real evidence that they
0: were lovers. Um, he's off at war; she's lonely. This is a real bridges of Madison County. It uh, is, and
1: he's already known as a sexer. You know, like as somebody that does sure. the, does the sexing.
0: If it's a guy with a sex cult and suddenly he's got access to the queen, what are the odds that he's, you know, suddenly into the sanctity of marriage?
1: Right. But it also is true that if you are the best at sex culting, you don't even need to have sex. (laughs) Like the truly great... He's transcended it. Yeah, the truly great sex cultists are the ones that, like, castrate themselves and fly up to meet the comet Right. Like, um, you know, it's not just about I mean, if you're out if you're out having sex with your teenage acolytes, you don't need to have sex with the czarina. You it's, just it's all the notes you don't play. That's right, all the notes you don't play. That's jazz. Uh but as the as the war wends on, um, the czar is doing a very, very bad job of commanding the army. It's the Hitler
0: problem. As you would imagine.
1: Yeah the tsar is not good at uh, at running an army and world war 1 is an intractable war there are no victors even a
0: good general is going to have a rough couple of years
1: yeah but the tsar is screwing it up and back at home rasputin and the Tsarina are also screwing up matters of political import to the point that other that that, that the royals uh, or the aristocracy in russia begin to conspire and recognize that Rasputin's got to go. There are several assassination attempts Rasputin is shot at and uh, sandbags are dropped on him. A piano falls out of...
0: It's a series of funny story. vignettes from a Pink Panther movie or, uh, exactly. or something like that.
1: Somebody puts a banana peel down, but he walks around it. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's the God. opposite of Wile E. Coyote. God
0: is protecting him. Yeah.
1: Uh, but in the end... There's a prince by the name of Prince Yusupov, and then a grand duke by the name of Pavlovich, and they invite Rasputin to, you know, a big fancy dinner where they're going to feed him, you know, a a whole turducken.
0: I'd be suspicious. And well, you know, you would think I'd be suspicious about the suckling pig. Rasputin would
1: have a better idea of what was happening and not not just fall into a big fat dinner. But they have laced the dinner with cyanide as a way of uh, of finally dispatching him.
0: And the crazy thing is he was suspicious of aspirin, but he loved cyanide. He loves it. Couldn't get enough of it. Uh, but
1: he ate a huge meal and then just sat there picking his teeth. The cyanide had no effect on him. Um, is there any modern explanation of why that might have been? I mean, they did do... Uh, they did exhume him and do tests on him later and discovered that there wasn't that much cyanide in it. So maybe they put the cyanide in the wrong. These guys didn't just lace. They put it in the ham and he ate mostly Turkey, but they were surprised. I think at the time, um, that, uh, that they hadn't successfully killed him and they decided to stop playing around and they actually shot him, uh, at close range, but he, and they thought he was dead. But he wasn't dead. So he, um, like stood up and tried to leave, like ran, ran for his escape. Uh, but then they shot him again a bunch of times and beat him up and he still wasn't dead. So they tied him up and they threw him in the, they threw him in a river. Uh, and this is in like it's basically new year's Eve, you know, it's, it's, uh, the dead of winter in Russia, they throw him in the frozen river. And, you know, of course at this point he drowns, although his legend suggested that he floated downriver, and some peasants pulled him out and he continued to live until a piano fell.
0: On. This is very important to, uh, to 20th century, late 20th century popular culture. Cause you want Rasputin to be the bad guy in, uh, the hellboy maybe one of the hellboy movies and uh, that don bluth anastasia movie right uh, you know you, you don't want him to you don't want him to die right then you want him to continue his villainy in various sequels
1: yeah that's true i mean you know you would you would prefer that rasputin be a um, be a ghostly because he always seemed
0: He's otherworldly.
1: Mystical and magical and scary. So if anybody
0: can get out of a series of of attacks like a cartoon character, what it would be a mystical, magical guy.
1: And if you look at him, at photographs of him, yeah. he looks very scary. He's very Manson-like.
0: And he continues to wear
1: these clothes that would have been considered very, very outdated, right? A very long beard, long stringy hair, a tunic... Um, and this is at a time when the rest of the royal court is in, you know, in peak
0: Victorian uh, culture. He's he's stolen Alan Moore's look, and he's doing it for the same reason that Alan Moore does it, which is to kind of seem like a a, a wise character from another time who's not at home in our depraved age. Right. Um, and I don't think, you know, what, what you don't see in
1: the photographs of him is how his, well, just like Manson, you can't imagine... Why anybody would be, would fall into the sway of this person who is clearly a maniac. But um,
0: maybe, maybe, see, right now in stills, he never blinks and that makes him look creepier. Maybe he just blinked a normal amount and people were like, this dude looks crazy. He is blinking a normal amount. He's probably got a cool voice. Maybe he's got a good vibe. (laughs) He
1: might, he might have, um, it might be pheromonal. He might just be exuding uh, under all that greasy hair some very, A, a really chill aroma. Yeah, just an aroma that makes you go,
0: That dude dude smells like sandalwood. He must be a good egg.
1: What in fact happened was his body froze into the river, which froze, Mm. and it took them several days to find him, his now completely frozen corpse. Uh, And uh, Yusupov and uh, Pavlovich were exiled from the court and sent packing because they – because, well, this was –
0: Oh, because she – He's still the Tsarina's favorite. Yeah, and this is still murder. Um, she was like, what did you suppose was going to happen? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So all of
1: this happens, you know, sort of New Year's Eve 1917. And by early in the spring, uh, the Tsar's armies were completely failing at every level uh, in the, on the Eastern Front.
0: Despite his inspiring leadership and his waving a saber, <laughs> that's right.
1: And it's oh, it's the very beginning of March uh, when there start uh, to be riots in St. Petersburg. People are rioting because of a lack of food and mm. because the you know the royal court is is uh, eating diamonds while everybody else is
0: starving. Mismanagement.
1: And it was very shortly after that that uh, you know that Lenin started to uh, agitate for the overthrow of the royal family and what's crazy about this is that the royal court was really delegitimized in the public eye in part because rasputin had was clearly like had such a sway over the tsarina and was regarded increasingly in the popular press because of the you know the um the agitation of the the royal court scandal. Yeah, the, all the all the duke the archdukes were trying to, you know, to cast Rasputin as an unreliable. They're trying
0: to make they're trying to make the current government look bad, so they can get rid of Rasputin. Right, but, but in, in, in the end,
1: it gives you the October Revolution. Yeah, exactly. That the that that a, a major motivating force of the Bolshevik Re- Revolution was the sense that that the government was being ruled by. Uh, you know, by a, a czarina that was under the sway of the black peril
0: and, and this, their love of this this flaky weirdo. Flaky monk. So maybe if uh if this if either Rasputin had not happened or this anti rasputin campaign had not happened, maybe you, the Bolshevik Revolution is not successful. Yeah, it's such a it's
1: such a perfect storm because the Tsar almost certainly would have still gone and lost the war, although maybe he took uh, maybe he he went to command his military leadership just to get out, just to get away from his wife and her and her Rasputin friend. But almost certainly, you know, the Russians still would have lost World War One.
0: Yeah, couldn't he have just gone to a bar or got a stamp collection? Right, right. Or just
1: buy a hot rod car and, and tinker <laughs> on it. Uh, but but the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, there's nothing about it that was inevitable. It was it was a combination of factors, and to think that. Rasputin and ultimately maybe aspirin was the inflection point.
0: Well, it's hard not to think about, you know, our day where we've become increasingly aware lately of how a seemingly stable society is actually just kind of pivoting on a few accidents of what happens when Right. it's, and maybe it's all an illusion. You want to think that, that solid, that things that look solid are solid except our, our Rasputin sold, uh, pillows on podcasts so that's you know it's it's, we're living in a a dissolute and depraved age
1: you know I wouldn't mind throwing my pillow
0: guy into a frozen river and that concludes Rasputin entry 1031.mt2411 certificate number 38899 in the omnibus futurelings There are lots of things you could do to support the show. If any of these methods still exist in your era, you could communicate with us by following at the omnibus project, various social media platforms, looking up at Ken Jennings on your platform of choice, looking for John, uh, on John Roderick on Patreon. Uh, you could, uh, you could send us communication. You You could let us know what you think. Sound off, sound off in the comments. Uh, by writing us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com or by sending us uh, physical correspondence to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. You could support the show by uh, recommending it to a friend or, uh, you know, of your species or another. Hmm. You could... Uh, Recommend our show to a friend of a different species and... Report back to us how it goes. Count your number of tentacles. Mm-hmm. Either add or subtract two, and uh, recommend the show to someone of that ilk. Who knows? We want to. We want to diversify. Uh, you could say something nice about the show on uh, by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice. But let's be honest, probably Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could uh, support the show uh, financially every. Uh, The show is self-sustaining because every month a large group of people say, oh, I'd like to contribute a small amount to keep Omnibus going this month. And so far that's happened every single month. And as a result, they get a cool bonus episode and other fun perks. This very show was uh, suggested by a listener named Michael who suggested a few ideas. And you really liked one of them but thought it was too World War II-y, too on the nose for you. I
1: might do the World War II one next time, just because you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be known as the guy that only does World War II shows, because the Futurelings. I mean, that's how the internet works, right? Futurelings will start to say, "Oh, every show's about World War II." It's like
0: one in a hundred. I took one for the team, and I did a train show last week instead Thank of you. you. Thank you. I uh, appreciate then he had another idea that you thought was maybe not World War II enough, and then, in the manner of Goldilocks, he said, "What about Rasputin? And that was just about right. Rah, rah, Rasputin. It had some World War One, but not enough. Very little World War II. Uh, and so uh, thank you, Michael, for supporting the show on Patreon. We hope you enjoyed the topic of your choice. Uh, again, patreon.com slash omnibusproject is where you can go if you have been enjoying Omnibus and have always thought, hey, maybe I could do a little more to support the show
1: links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long this civilization survived or what Rasputin will end up being its downfall. I mean, right now there could be some uh, uh, some Rasputin-like figure in the royal court of Joe Biden,
0: whispering things to mm-hmm. Joe Biden. Who do you think? Who do you think that would be? Giving too much aspirin? Is it? Uh,
1: is Abby Hoffman still alive? No. It's got to be um, Eugene Levy.
0: No, he's also dead. He's, he's also not American.
1: Right. Uh, well, Rasputin was from Siberia. Is
0: oh, that- so yeah, and C- Canada kind of is our. I mean, Alaska is our Siberia.
1: Yeah, Canada can. Canada is our Canada. C- American <laughs> Siberia. <laughs> uh, who would it be that's whispering in Joe Biden's ear? Who
0: who played at the inauguration? Uh, uh, the Eagles. Garth Brooks. It's well. The-
1: I trust Garth Brooks.
0: Oh, I trust Garth implicitly. But, but do Chris Gaines? How far do you trust Chris Gaines? Not at all. No, not. And he looks like Rasputin. He, Chris Gaines does. Them. It is Chris Gaines. Trent Reznor is mm-hmm. not our Rasputin. Mm-hmm. Garth Brooks disguised as Trent Reznor is our Rasputin. Well, we hope and pray that that Chris Gaines Please Chris, don't never bring comes. down society.
1: But if he comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word.
0: Man, there are so many women in Nashville saying, I hope Chris Gaines never comes. Chris Gaines.
1: Oh, wow. Ding. Uh, If Providence allows, and if the women of Nashville allow, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.